text for this morning is Psalm 11. Temptations, people of God, take many different forms and appeal to many different evil desires in our hearts. They may, for example, appear, appeal to our love of pleasure, to our lust for power, to our love of money, to our envy, to our fear, or to any one of a number of evil motives. In this psalm that we have before us, David addresses a particular temptation which appeals to fear. The temptation to flee when confronted by the threat of an enemy to abandon one's post, one's duty, one's principles for the sake of personal safety. So we're going to consider this psalm then under the theme, David rejects the advice of fear. David rejects the advice of fear. First in verses 1 to 3, the advice rejected, and then in verses 4 to 7, the reasons for that rejection. David rejects the advice of fear. The advice rejected, verses 1 to 3, and the reasons for the rejection, verses 4 to 7. Now if you look at the beginning of the psalm, you'll see that David begins the psalm with an unequivocal assertion of trust in the Lord. In the Lord I put my trust. Or better, in the Lord, I take refuge. It's clear then from that very first line of the psalm that David is in trouble of some sort. We don't yet know what the trouble is. He hasn't told us anything about the nature of the trouble at this point. But he says, in the Lord, I put my trust. That is, in this trouble, whatever this trouble may be, whatever we find it out to be, the Lord will be my trust. The Lord will be my refuge. I'll seek my protection and help in Him. And it's that mood, that mood of confidence, that assertion of trust in the Lord that dominates the whole of the psalm. It's important to keep that in mind. We don't see here in the psalm any hesitation on the part of David. We don't see any waverings, any doubts, any inner turmoil or anything like that. The whole psalm is an expression of confidence, an expression of hope and trust in the Lord his God. Now the problem that David faces, he begins to address in the second line of the psalm. How can you say to my soul, so people are talking to David, that's obvious, and people are, as we'll see in a moment, giving to him advice, and this advice is, David says, bad advice. He does not intend to take this advice. His immediate reaction to this advice, in fact, is, in the Lord I put my trust, how can you say, with a certain amount of incredulity even. How is it possible that you could even think that I would follow such advice as you are given to, giving to me? 
It seems from the way that that advice is word, worded, and by the way, the advice itself is all of verses 2 and 3 in addition to the last line of verse 1. Those are the words that these people are, take, are speaking to him. It seems that those words are being spoken to him by friends, or at least by people who are pretending to be friends. They are coming to him, and at least this much they are saying, this is a bit of friendly advice which we have to give to you. Flee to your mountain as a bird, for look, the wicked bend their bow. So it's friends, or at least friend, pretend friends who are coming and giving that advice. And they point David to his precarious position over against the wicked. In other words, they're addressing the whole subject of the antithesis of that warfare which takes place between believer and unbelievers in this world. And they point David to the precariousness of his position in that battle with these ungodly men. Look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string to shoot in secret at the upright in heart. The wicked are ready to attack you. The wicked intend your destruction. They're lying in ambush. They're lying in wait secretly to take you by surprise, if at all possible. In addition to that, these wicked men are saying, you don't have any firm ground to stand on. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, not only are the wicked attacking him, but all the ground upon which David stands is crumbling away beneath him. The foundations are being destroyed. They're basically saying to him, there's no hope left for your cause. There's no possibility anymore of achieving victory. The cause is lost. And because the cause is lost, you might just as well run away. Flee as a bird to your mountain. That advice is phrased in a way that's urgent. The mountain here is just a metaphor, I think, for a place of security. They're saying to David, go find a safe place somewhere where you can save yourself from the wreck of all that's happening around you. But they say, notice, flee as a bird. And I think that phrase means something similar to what we would say when we say we go as the crow flies. That is, go as straight and as quickly as possible to this place of refuge. Get out while the getting's good. That is, people of God, the counsel of fear. David does not deny the existence of this threat. The threat exists. These wicked men are ready to attack. It's very likely even that the foundations were falling and that there was, from a human perspective, very little that David could do. But God had given David a position and a calling, a calling to fight the battle of faith. And in that battle, these people had come to him and said, the battle's lost. You might just as well give up. The wicked bend their bow to shoot in secret at the upright in heart. Get out while the getting's good. Forget about your principles. 
Forget about your obligations. Forget about your calling from God. All these things don't matter anymore. All that matters in these circumstances is your personal safety. Flee as a bird to your mountain. That's the nature of the temptation that David is facing. And, as we noted from the beginning, it is that temptation to which David says, No. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say this to my soul? How is it possible that anyone could advise me to do that in these circumstances? And we all face that kind of temptation sometimes, of course, in the course of our lives. I don't mean necessarily that we face it in some great crisis of faith, as for example, our fellow Christians in Iraq, for example, are facing right now. Or as the Apostle speaks about in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews 11, toward the end of that chapter, verses 35 and following, the apostle says this, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. There the apostle speaks, of course, of martyrs and of others who have suffered greatly in the cause of the kingdom of heaven. But these counsels of fear don't always happen, people of God, in those great crises like that. They may happen, for example, when we are tempted to tell a lie to save ourselves some shame or some trouble. When we listen to that counsel, that's the counsel of fear. I don't want people to think badly of me. Or I don't want, I don't want to bring trouble on myself. I'm going to avoid trouble by a little lie here at the moment. They come to us when we go along with friends who have made a sinful choice. And instead of standing up against their sinful choice and refusing to do what they have chosen to do, we go along with them. They come to us when we refuse to help someone because helping that person will take us out of our comfort zone, as we call it. Those counsels of fear come frequently in our lives. Very frequently, for us anyway, in these small things. Just forget about your principles. Just forget about your obligations. Just forget about obedience. And protect yourself. We saw an example of that also in Luke chapter 13 with regard to our Lord Jesus Christ. The Pharisees came to him one day while he was teaching and said to him words that were 
very similar to the words that David's friends spoke to him. They said, get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill me, kill you. Now it's likely that these Pharisees who came to Jesus to say that were not really friends, of course. The Pharisees very seldom were friends of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was, therefore, an attempt on their part, a blatant attempt on their part, to induce fear in him and to get him to forsake his obligations, the things that he was doing there in that area. It's even possible, from Jesus' answer to them, it appears possible, that they had been sent by Herod himself. You remember that Herod had heard about Jesus and that Herod had said, this is John the Baptist raised to life. Well, Herod would, in those circumstances, of course, be very reluctant to attempt another murder of John the Baptist. But he might have, seems possible from Jesus' answer to them, he might have decided, I'll send some of my Pharisee friends to him and see if I can at least get him out of my territory. Jesus faced such a temptation also, I think, in the wilderness when the devil came to him and tempted him three times. Now, this, in this situation, it may not have been in the devil's mind to induce fear in him. The devil had perhaps other motives in mind. But in all of those temptations, our Lord at least saw that the devil was trying to draw him away from the path of obedience. And, of course, for our Lord Jesus Christ, that path of obedience meant the cross, which was... For him, a terror, a terror that loomed through all of his life. I'm sure from the moment in his life that he first became aware that his death, his life must end that way. If it was not the counsel of fear from Satan himself, certainly people of God, those counsels of fear could have been in his own heart. Here's the way out. Here's the way of escape from the cross. We see it again in Matthew chapter 16. After Peter had confessed him to be the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus began to talk to his disciples about how he must suffer and die. And Peter said to him, Lord, it shall not be. Jesus' response to him seems very harsh, does it not? Get behind me, Satan. But it's harsh because that was the counsel of fear again. Peter was advising, even if he did not really know it or know it very clearly, he was advising forsaking the way of obedience in order that Jesus might save his own life. That's the kind of temptation that Stephen, the martyr, must have faced when the Jews were threatening him. It's the kind of temptation which Abraham must have faced when God sent to him and said, go sacrifice your son Isaac. Where would God's promises be? The counsels of fear were very real and relevant even to his spiritual life in that case. But the answer of David to these counsels of fear was, in the Lord I put my trust. The answer of Christ was, Get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter, to the Pharisees. Go tell Herod that I have work to do. 
and I intend you to do that work until it's finished. I'm not going to die here at your hands, Herod, because I know that my death is going to be in Jerusalem. And I'll go there when the time comes and face my death according to the decree of God. This is the temptation of all the martyrs throughout the history of the church. And many times, people of God the wicked have pressed that temptation home to the best of their ability, saying, all you have to do is say one little word, one little word of denial, one little word of rejection, and your life will be saved. This is the counsel of our own hearts when we are faced with something we don't want to do. Just keep quiet. Just don't act. Just withdraw yourself. Flee to your mountain like a bird. Put your personal safety first. How do we find the strength, people of God, to respond to that kind of temptation, to resist and to reject that counsel of fear? There is, in spite of appearances, there is sound and faithful reasoning behind a rejection of that kind of counsel. And we find that reasoning in verses 4 to 7 of this psalm. In verse 4 of the last part of the psalm, David sets the scene for us with three statements. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold his eyelids test the sons of men. Now, notice there that what David is doing is he's bringing into the picture another factor which his friends and his enemies have not considered. And that factor is the Lord. The issue here, according to David, is not between me and the wicked alone. The question here is not my personal safety versus the threat which the wicked are making against me. That's not the essence of it. The essence of this thing here is that the Lord is also present. This is what his friends had lost sight of, his, or his pretend friends. This is what they were not taking into account. The Lord is in his holy temple. That is, he dwells in and among us. You cannot just give this counsel of fear without taking into account that the Lord is present in these circumstances. If you have not taken that factor into account, you've made a fundamental mistake. You have to reckon that into your equation too and your counsel to me has to be founded first on that essential truth. The Lord is in his holy temple. In addition, the Lord's throne is in heaven. That means he's king. 
He's king over David. He's king over David's enemies. He's king over those supposed friends of David who are giving this counsel to him. And he's a king who has laid down laws for his subjects to obey, who has appointed David to a particular position in his kingdom, who has given him obligations to fulfill in that kingdom. David's going to be answerable to that king for whatever he does with those responsibilities that God has given him. He has a calling that he has to fulfill. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. That phrase, sons of men, is not the same words that we found in Psalm 4, where we talked about how that sons of men means the noble, the excellent, the exalted among the people. It's sons of man, humanity in general, that David is talking about here. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. That is, he sees me, he sees these enemies, he sees these supposed friends, he knows all the circumstances. There's nothing hidden from him. He's not ignorant of what's going on. And his eyelids test. That's a very interesting expression, isn't it? It's the only place in the scriptures I think we find it. And it's uh, an expression, I think, which conveys to us the idea that first God has seen, that he's observed, he's looked at what men are doing, and now it's as if his eyes are half closed so that you can see his eyelids, and he's considering, he's thinking, he's assessing what he has seen. His eyelids test the sons of man. So that word test means that he is then assessing the behavior of all these people he's looking at. He's judging it according to his law. He's seeing whether that behavior is in obedience or in disobedience, in submission to him or in rebellion against him, in conformity to his calling or in rejection of his calling. That's the picture then. The Lord's present. The Lord's judging. The Lord's seeing all that's going on. Now in verse 5, we see David branching off from that fundamental idea of the Lord's presence and the Lord's testing to take two different paths. First, in the first part of the verse, the Lord tests the righteous. And then in the last part of the verse, the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So David makes a separation now between the righteous and the wicked. And he said, when the Lord says, when the Lord tests the sons of man, he doesn't test them all in the same way and he doesn't deal with them all in the same way. He makes a difference between them. He tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. That word test that you have there in the first part of verse 5 is the very same word that you find in verse 4. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. And the basic meaning of the word is the same here as there. He's assessing the righteous. But the assessment takes a little different form here. It's not just an assessment by observation, but it's assessment by now fiery trial. 
The Lord tests the righteous. What David means is that this temptation he's talking about in verses 1 to 3 is the Lord's testing him. The Lord has brought him into these circumstances. The Lord has raised up the wicked against him. The Lord has brought about this threat in his life. The Lord also has worked sovereignly in these supposed friends of David to bring them to the point of offering their counsel, their friendly counsel. Flee as a bird to your mountain. This is the Lord's testing of him. Those tests of the Lord, people of God, can be very, very severe. We see, see how severe they are in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see the severity of those tests in Hebrews chapter 11, in those verses we read about the martyrs and those who suffered for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We see that severity in the example of Abraham and his son Isaac. The Lord's tests are severe. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 talk about fiery trials. Let's turn there for a minute, in fact, because Peter's deeply concerned about that whole question of fear and standing against the counsels of fear throughout this letter because these saints are suffering persecution. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this, that is, in the salvation promised, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James also talks about such trials in the first few verses of his letter. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So David's response to this advice of his friends, this counsel of his friends, is not, the Lord's going to save me from these circumstances. David's response is, this is the Lord testing me. This is the Lord trying me as gold is tried by the fire. This is the Lord submitting me to cruel mockings and scourgings, to the threat of death, to much pain and suffering, many, many different kinds of temptations and trials in order to purge and purify my faith as gold is purified by the fire. David sees in this test, in this temptation rather, the testing of his Lord. The Lord tests the righteous. So there is no promise here to David that he's, there's going to be a good outcome to what's happening, at least as far as earthly things are concerned. The Lord doesn't promise that to his people in these kinds of temptations. He sometimes permits them to suffer martyrdom and many cruel and, and violent things at the hands of wicked men. But it's the testing of the Lord. Testing for the purification of faith. 
Though it's a painful thing, people of God, to undergo such testing, it is nevertheless a much better thing than what the wicked undergo. The wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. We can feel, in that language of David, the intensity of the Lord's hatred for the wicked. His soul hates them. This is the spontaneous reaction of his soul towards these wicked men. He hates them. It does away with any sort of idea that the Lord loves the sinner but hates his sin. The Lord hates the wicked. He hates them passionately. He hates them from his soul. Because he hates them, people of God, he rains upon them, verse 6, coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind. The word coals in the first line of the verse is better translated snares. And frequently in the scriptures refers to snares for birds. He rains upon them snares, that is, he sets traps for them. He sets traps for them in order to bring them to destruction. The words fire and brimstone refer to Sodom. That's an allusion to what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah back in the days of Abraham. He brought destruction on them for the greatness of their wickedness. The burning wind is a fierce, hot, dry wind that will wither whatever it blows on and will eventually carry it away. That's, David said, that will be the portion of their cup. That will be what God meets out to them. He tests the righteous, and that's a painful thing, but look also at what he does to the wicked. Don't forget that. If you're tempted to join the wicked, or if you're tempted to flee from them, giving up your principles and your obligations, consider what he will do. And he does these things because he's righteous. All of this comes from his righteousness. He loves righteousness. Just as he hates the wicked, so he loves righteousness. He wants in his people, therefore, to preserve, to strengthen, and to purify that righteousness. That's why he submits them to the tests, the trials of this life. He wants to bring it forth in all its glory. And finally, his countenance beholds the upright. He looks with love and favor upon them. That's strength sufficient, people of God, to stand against the counsels of fear. His countenance beholds the upright. That's hope great enough to be patient and to endure to the end. When we face such temptations, such counsels of fear, then our response should be, in the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Take refuge in him. Commit your cause to him in prayer. Consider his word. And all that he has revealed to you about himself and his works in that word. Lay hold of his promises, which are steadfast. 
and be patient. The day of deliverance is coming. Having heard the preaching of God's word, let's say amen.